Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Aminder. I've got an exciting mix of papers to tell you all about today, including topics like cognitive reserve, reinforcement learning, language, visuomotor control, and mood disorders. And that's just a taste of some of the research you'll hear about in this diverse episode, all about research on cognitive and behavioral changes in Alzheimer's disease. Stay tuned. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. I'm your host for today, Ellen Kosh, and I'm excited to be back once again to bring you our monthly episode on cognitive and behavioral changes in Alzheimer's disease. You'll hear me refer to Alzheimer's disease as AD from now on. In these episodes, we cover the latest research into cognitive changes, such as memory loss, learning deficits, executive functions, and more, and other behavioral changes like psychiatric disturbances, motor changes, and altered sleep in Alzheimer's. There's a lot of research out there into the molecular mechanisms behind AD that we cover in our other Aminder episodes and our bibliographies, including research on things like amyloid beta pathology, tau protein, um, neuroinflammation, to name a few. But in this episode, we cover the research that specifically focused on understanding the symptoms of AD better, what neurological mechanisms might be contributing to specific symptoms of the disorder, and in some cases, we talk about new therapeutic strategies that are targeted at specific symptoms, such as a paper we're actually covering today, testing a therapy targeting the symptom of apathy. So I hope that intro has intrigued you into hearing more about this research, which is from September 2021 for today's episode. We have a big episode today with 17 papers to get to. But first, I wanted to give a big shout out to our sponsor, the Canadian Consortium of Neurodegeneration and Aging, or CCNA, for supporting our podcast this year. Their monetary support helps us to buy equipment, software, and more, all to support our volunteer-run organization. Thank you, CCNA. Note that the papers covered in our episodes or anything about the way that they're summarized or the content of the episode is not influenced by our sponsors in any way. And don't forget that today's episode, along with every episode of Aminder, comes with a numbered bibliography so you can find any papers that caught your attention easily after the show. You can find the link to today's bibliography and to all of our bibliographies in the episode notes. And if the episode notes aren't showing up on the app you're listening with, you can also find them on our website at aminder.com. And if there's a topic that we haven't covered in our episodes this month, check the bibliographies too, because we also have many bibliographies on topics that aren't covered in full episodes. So that's an awesome resource that I highly recommend you check out. Now, let's get on with the show, with our first section about papers on general cognitive ability. We have five papers here. First in this section, we have a few papers that talk about cognitive reserve. And if you want a refresher on what this is, this refers to the brain's ability to adapt to neurological changes, preserving cognitive function even when pathological changes are occurring in the brain. In people with brain pathology, such as that seen in Alzheimer's disease, they often experience different degrees of cognitive adaptation and resilience. 
Some people have more cognitive reserve than others, making them able to avoid some symptoms of cognitive deficits and dementia, despite having similar AD pathology in their brain. And some factors like education, occupation, and lifestyle have been associated with cognitive reserve. Clearly, getting a better idea of the risk factors and neural mechanisms behind cognitive reserve is an important avenue of research to help us prevent or treat cognitive decline. Paper number one of the episode comes out of San Camillo Hospital in Rome, Italy, by three authors, Montemuro, Mondini, and Arcara. The title is Heterogeneity of Effects of Cognitive Reserve on Performance in Probable Alzheimer's Disease and Its Subjective Cognitive Decline. And this one is published in Neuropsychology. The authors of this paper were interested in the variability in cognitive reserve measures and the best ways to capture this phenomenon in people with probable AD and subjective cognitive decline. And I'll be referring to subjective cognitive decline as SCD from now on. So they looked at two proxies for cognitive reserve, the first being education and the second being life experience. And then they also examined the type of cognitive test that was used, which was either the, either the mini mental state exam or the brief neuropsychological examination 2, which I'll be calling ENB2 or ENB2. In the participants that had suspected Alzheimer's, there was a positive correlation between education and both cognitive tests looked at. However, in the SCD group, the life experience proxy correlated with global score in the ENB2. So in the more severe dementia seen in AD, the authors conclude that education can be a good proxy of cognitive compensation, but in the less severe SCD, life experience seems to capture the effects of cognitive reserve. Next up is paper number two, which is a study using brain imaging in AD patients and investigating how brain atrophy relates to cognitive impairment and cognitive reserve. It's published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Sato and last author Shimitsu, who are from the Tokyo Medical University. The title of this one is Discrepancy Between the Degree of Cognitive Impairment and Brain Imaging Abnormalities in Alzheimer's Disease Patients is Associated with Cognitive Reserve. The study was sparked by the observation that some patients have mild cognitive deficits but have severe neurological changes that are usually seen in the highly impaired individuals. So is cognitive reserve at play here? The authors used data from 135 patients that had probable AD, which included MRI and single photon emission computed tomography imaging results. And it also included factors like education, occupation, and more as proxies for cognitive reserve. They did a multiple regression analysis, and this revealed that education and leisure activities significantly associated with the discrepancies seen between the cognitive and the imaging results. They used these two factors to define the high cognitive reserve group, and they found a higher discrepancy index in this group compared to the moderate and low cognitive reserve groups. So this would mean that the high cognitive reserve group had more of a discrepancy between the neurological pathology seen in the brain imaging and their cognitive results. They're performing better than expected on average. The authors believe that lifestyle interventions could increase cognitive reserve, thereby delaying cognitive symptoms of AD. 
And we actually have a full episode on non-pharmacological interventions and prevention strategies for AD that might interest you if you like the sounds of that last paper. This month around, it's episode number 232, hosted by Nyla. For the third paper of the episode, we have a study looking at the relationship between various daily living skills and cognitive processing. The title is, Cognitive Processing Speed is Strongly Related to Driving Skills, Financial Abilities, and Other Instrumental Activities of Daily Living in Persons with Mild Cognitive Impairment and Mild Dementia. It's published in the Journal of Gerontology, Series A, Biological Sciences and Medical Sciences, by first author Wadley and last author Kennedy at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. The researchers in this study looked at the relationship between processing speed, various AD biomarkers, and daily functioning, mobility, and driving skills. They used data from the Applying Programs to Preserve Skills trial from about 100 patients with mild dementia, and they used linear regression models to look at the aforementioned factors. The authors report a significant association between MRI neurodegenerative biomarkers with functional performance and mobility. Driving ratings were associated with better processing speed and younger age. And finally, they state that processing speed was positively associated with instrumental activities of daily living, which usually includes things like using the phone, shopping for groceries, etc. And processing speed was also associated with driving and mobility. So it seems that cognitive processing speed is very important to everyday tasks. And based on this, I would think that interventions to improve cognitive processing could improve the everyday abilities and even the quality of life for those living with dementia. The next paper switches gears to look at how other neuropathological conditions can contribute to cognitive deficits, dementia, and Alzheimer's pathology. Published in the journal Acta Neuropathologica Communications, this study comes out of Rush University Medical Center and Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago from first author Agrawal and last author Schneider. The title of the paper number four is The Association of Lewy Bodies with Limbic Predominant Age-Related TDP-43 Encephalopathy Neuropathologic Changes and Their Role in Cognition and Alzheimer's Dementia in Older Persons. Lewy bodies and limbic predominant age-related TDP-43 encephalopathy, or LATE-NC, as I'll be calling it, are the subject of this study, and they are common in older individuals. Since AD is also common in elderly people, these researchers asked what the relationship was between all of these disorders and how their combination affects cognitive impairment. They used cognitive and postmortem pathological data from six from 1,670 community-dwelling individuals, about two-thirds of which were female, and they excluded subjects who had suffered from frontotemporal lobar degeneration. Their findings were as follows. A quarter of the individuals had Lewy body pathology, and about, about half had late NC. Interestingly, those with Alzheimer's dementia also were more likely to have combined late NC and Lewy bodies. Late NC and both neocortical type Lewy bodies and limbic type Lewy bodies were correlated with an increased odds of Alzheimer's dementia, lower global cognition, and worse performance on specific cognitive domains. All in all, this study sheds light on the negative impact these pathological conditions can have on Alzheimer's dementia. 
I encourage you to check out the original paper for more info. They looked at a lot of different things in this one and I wasn't able to cover it all. So check out our bibliography in the show notes to find the full paper. The next paper of our episode today, and the last of this section, looks at the use of an anti-seizure drug in AD treatment. Paper number five is titled, Effect of Leveteracetam on Cognition in Patients with Alzheimer's Disease with and Without Epileptiform Activity, a Randomized Clinical Trial. Um, And this one is coming out of the journal JAMA Neurology. First author is Vossel. Last author is, is Kirsch. And this is a collaboration between institutions across the U.S., Because of the role of network hyperexcitability that's been found in AD pathology, which you can hear more about in our episodes on synaptic dysfunction and treatments targeting this, these researchers conducted a clinical trial using the anti-seizure drug levetiracetam. And luckily, that's the last time I'll have to say the name out loud. (laughs) About 30 adults with AD participated in this phase 2A randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled crossover trial. The participants were also tested for epileptiform activity in the brain using overnight EEG and one-hour MEG examination. So they divided the participants into group A and group B. The first group started by taking a placebo twice daily for four weeks, four weeks of washout, and then four weeks of the drug. And group B did this sequence in reverse. You can read the full paper to get all the study details. But getting to the main results, 28 of the participants completed the, the duration of the study. 10 of these had epileptiform activity in their brain. The authors did not see any overall improvements in primary or secondary outcomes. However, those with epileptiform activity did show improvements in some cognitive tests, according to the authors. So there may be some merit to this treatment, particularly in those that suffer from both AD and seizure-like activity in the brain. But larger studies are needed to explore this more. Now we move on to a small section that has just one paper on reinforcement learning, a topic very close to my heart. I've done some reinforcement learning-based behavioral experiments in my own research, and I was always intrigued by this field. It's so relevant to our daily lives as well. I know I personally use reinforcement on myself to bribe myself to do certain things that I don't want to do, like exercising or things I've been procrastinating. (laughs) So it's definitely very relevant. And positive reinforcement is also the main way we train our puppy with so many treats. Um, And, you know, our puppy also responds to social reinforcement like praise or pets. Social reinforcement also plays a big role in our lives as people, as you may suspect. In people, this may look like smiling, positive touch, praise, or other ways that we show signs of approval to each other. Socially reinforced learning is a topic of our sixth paper. First author Lagaz and last author Ibanez, affiliated with institutions across Argentina, Chile, and the U.S., bring you this paper, published in Brain. The title is Multimodal Mechanisms of Human Socially Reinforced Learning Across Neurodegenerative Diseases. Previous research has shown that social feedback can have a positive effect on learning, but this was mainly done in healthy people. These authors wanted to look at this in the context of neurodegenerative disease, so they recruited 40 healthy individuals, 21 people with behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia, 31 with Parkinson's, and 20 with AD. They compared learning with social feedback to learning without social feedback, 
and they also simultaneously measured EEG and separately took an MRI scan of each participant. Interestingly, social feedback helped in healthy individuals as expected, but there was an impairment in this in the Parkinson's and the frontotemporal dementia patients, while 80 patients had learning deficits that were not specific to social reinforcement. They go into a lot of the EEG and MRI scan results for the three different disorders that I won't get into here, but please take a look at the paper for all of that info. All in all, the study showed differences in learning and the effects of social feedback across these three neurodegenerative diseases. For our last section before the break, we have a few papers on speech and language in AD, which is something that can commonly be impaired in patients with this disease. The seventh paper of the episode looks at amyloid beta accumulation and its relationship to language, and it's appropriately titled, Changes in the Language System as Amyloid Beta Accumulates. This one is published in Brain by first author Reinartz, last author Vandenberg, and they are from the Leuven Brain Institute in Belgium. For this study, over five to six years, these researchers followed 35 cognitively intact older adults to look at the relationship between amyloid beta measured by PET imaging and functional changes in the language network examined using functional MRI. They also looked at tau load with PET imaging as well. During the functional MRI, participants performed an associative semantic task and a visuospatial task. Authors compared the amplitude of response in the posterior temporal cortex during these two tasks. They found that the relative response amplitude during the associative semantic task compared to the visuospatial task increased over time as amyloid levels increased. As well, increased amyloid accumulation was associated with decreased response amplitude of the left inferior frontal sulcus and the right dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, but tau load didn't correlate with any changes in response amplitude. My understanding is that these participants were still asymptomatic, even though areas associated with language were starting to show changes. And these authors showed that these changes were correlated with amyloid beta accumulation. So the authors conclude that amyloid accumulation may be impacting brain circuitry involved in language starting very early on in the course of AD progression. We have a whole episode on detecting amyloid in tau in the brain that you might be interested in if that last paper caught your attention. This month around, Alex hosted this topic in episode 225. Check it out! Paper 8 of the episode looks at how processing speed, or processing speech, sorry, and processing sound in general is affected in AD. Specifically, these researchers looked at binaural processing. This refers to the cognitive processing of auditory information coming in from both ears. The combination of this information from two ears rather than one helps us to better localize sounds, understand speech, filter sounds in the environment, and more. And these scientists were curious how this was affected in Alzheimer's disease. This paper is published in Alzheimer's Dementia by first author Wang and last author Tang at the Capital Medical University and the Ministry of Education in Beijing, China. The title is Binaural Processing Deficit and Cognitive Impairment in Alzheimer's Disease. The study was conducted with 121 participants who either had AD, mild cognitive impairment, subjective cognitive decline, or were considered cognitively normal. They did behavioral and electrophysiological testing, but they don't describe these in any detail. The authors report that there was an impairment in binaural processing in the AD and mild cognitive impairment groups, 
and that there was an improvement in face synchrony between mild cognitive impairment and AD. In EEG recordings, face synchrony refers to the synchrony or similar patterns of activity in the EEG signals from dis- uh, between diff- distant regions of the brain. So giving a readout of the functional connectivity between these regions. The authors think that the improvement in EEG phase synchrony that occurs in AD may be a compensation for binaural processing. They also state that this increase was related to worse memory in the AD patients. So perhaps this somehow contributes to cognitive impairment. There aren't many details on the experimental methods in this abstract, so please check out the original paper if you're interested in their results. Now we'll continue on to the ninth paper of the episode, exploring design and verbal fluency in neurodegenerative disease. Verbal fluency refers to individuals' ability to generate words given a category, such as animals, whereas design fluency refers to an individual's ability to generate a figure that fits a certain criteria, and both of these test various aspects of executive function and memory retrieval. This paper is called Design and Verbal Fluency in Alzheimer's Disease and Frontotemporal Dementia, Clinical and Metabolic Correlates. It comes from Delgado Alvarez and Matias Gu, first and last authors, from um, the San Carlos Institute for Health Research at Universidad Complutense um, in Spain, and it's published in the Journal of the International Neuropsychology Society. These authors asked whether Alzheimer's disease and frontotemporal dementia were characterized by different patterns of impairment in verbal and design fluency and different underlying neuronal dysfunction. They had 80, 80, 80, 80 patients. <laughs> that sounds funny. 80, 80 Alzheimer's patients, 34 behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia patients, and 28 healthy older adults and they had them complete cognitive testing and PET imaging. Both neurodegenerative diseases performed worse than healthy controls on the verbal fluency and the design fluency tasks. Interesting differences were seen between the two groups in terms of brain imaging. The authors report that semantic fluency was associated with the frontotemporal lobe in AD, whereas for frontotemporal dementia, performance in this domain associated with left frontal, caudate, and thalamic areas. For design fluency, the percentage of unique designs and the number of repetitions were both correlated with metabolism in the frontal, temporal, and parietal lobes bilaterally in AD. On the other hand, the percentage of unique designs in the frontotemporal dementia group were related to right-dominant bilateral frontal cortex and repetitions related to left prefrontal cortex. So the researchers end by stating that frontotemporal parietal regions were key in the AD group, whereas frontal cortex was the most significant in the frontotemporal dementia patients. We'll take a quick break here, where you'll hear about a quick word from our sponsor and some words from our own A-Minder team. When we come back, you'll hear me talk more about visuomotor control, psychiatric changes, and sleep and circadian rhythms. I want to take a short break to convince you to join me and the editing team here at Aminder. We are responsible for the high quality, polished episodes you hear, and our team is looking to grow so that we can cover even more episodes in a month. If you're interested in learning the ropes, send us an email at amindorpodcast at gmail.com. 
We do have other positions on our team, if you're interested in those. I find it to be a rewarding auditory and visual challenge, and I love working behind the scenes to get the best out of our hosts. So if you want to feel like a superhero after editing out mistakes seamlessly, please reach out to me and to the Aminder team. Nearly one million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years, and sadly no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia, and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. Okay, we are back, and I actually did take a little break. I went and got a glass of water, because it's a lot of talking during this podcast. <laughs> and let's move on to our next two papers, which are on visuospatial and motor control. So these papers involve complex tasks with components of visuospatial awareness, visuomotor control, perceptual processes, and executive function. And the papers look at how these are affected in Alzheimer's disease. Paper 10 investigates how gesture imitations are affected in neurodegenerative disease and what underlying neuropsychological processes are involved. Published in International Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry by authors Nagahama, Okina, and Suzuki, this paper comes out of Kawasaki Memorial and Shiga General Hospitals in Japan. The title is Neuropsychological Basis of Impaired Gesture Imitations in Patients with Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia with Lewy Bodies. This study tested unilateral finger and bimanual, meaning both hands, gesture imitations in about 160 AD patients and 100 with Lewy body dementia, and they compared how performance on these tasks compared with a number of common cognitive measures. In these tasks, patients are asked to imitate sequences using their fingers or their hands. The Lewy body patients were worse than 80 patients on unilateral finger imitation, but no difference was seen between the two groups in bimanual gesture imitations. The authors report that in the Alzheimer's patients, performance in pentagon copying, which is a figure copying task, predicted unilateral finger imitation performance. But in the Lewy body group, Cube copying was the specific task that predicted this. Scores on the trail-making test predicted bimanual gesture imitation performance in both groups. In the AD group, unilateral finger imitation was also predicted by phonemic fluency, whereas this was predicted by cube copying, which measures visuospatial ability, or it was also predicted by Parkinsonium severity for the Lewy body group. Based on all of this, the researchers think that bimanual gesture imitations involve processes like visuospatial attention, executive function, and visuomotor control, whereas unilateral finger imitation is more similar to visuoconstructive tasks like figure drawing. Let's jump to the next paper now that looks again at Lewy body disease in AD, this time determining the underlying brain dysfunction contributing to specific cognitive impairments. 
This paper is published in Brain Imaging and Behavior by first author Beretta and last author Pirani from the IRCCS San Rafael Scientific Institute in Milan. Paper 11, Distinct Brain Dysfunctions Underlying Visuoconstructive Deficits in DLB and AD. Beretta and colleagues used the Ray Osterreith complex figure copy task to compare different mechanisms of impairment and the underlying neural correlates in 34 probable AD and 45 probable Lewy body disease patients. They also looked at brain hypometabolism, though they don't include any information on the imaging methods behind this. What they found was that performance on the complex figure copy task was correlated with hypometabolism in different regions of the brain. For the Lewy body disease individuals, occipital and temporoparietal areas were involved, whereas the AD group had involvement of just temporoparietal regions. In the end, the authors suggest that distinct brain dysfunctions are implicated in the inability to, por- to perform this task in the two groups. Next, we'll talk about psychiatric changes in AD with three papers for this episode. Each month, we cover a range of psychiatric disturbances that can occur in this disease. And today, we've got a paper on depression, one on awareness, and one on a drug treatment for apathy. Let's talk about paper number 12, where the researchers look at the relationship between mobility and depression. This one is called Mobility and Depressive Symptoms in, patient, in Persons with Mild Cognitive Impairment and Alzheimer's Dementia. This one comes out of Oslo University Hospital in Norway by Flugon, Jorensen, and Tangen, and it's published in the Journal of Neurology and Physical Therapy. Because people suffering from cognitive decline also often experience mobility problems and depressive symptoms, these authors wanted to see if there was a relationship between the two. I could imagine that having limited mobility and motor impairments could worsen symptoms of depression in these individuals, so I think I understand what might possibly be the motive for looking to see if there's a connection between these behavioral symptoms. About 100 people from Oslo University Hospital with either mild cognitive impairment or AD were recruited for this study, and they compared various tests of gait and mobility as well as depression. In their analysis, they controlled for various factors like demographics and cognitive ability, and they used multiple regression to analyze the data. What did they find? Well, one-third of the participants were determined to have depressive symptoms but they found no correlation between depressive symptoms and mobility. The authors suspect that this negative result may be because not enough of their participants showed depressive symptoms, so they suggest having longitudinal studies to look at the possible connection between these two domains more closely. I'm glad they still published their data, though, even though it was negative, because... It's really important to publish negative findings as well to help move the field along and not have people waste time studying the same thing over and over. Okay, so how does being aware of your disease affect other aspects of your cognitive and emotional health? Also, how do psychiatric conditions affect your self-awareness? Getting a diagnosis like Alzheimer's disease can understandably be extremely difficult and emotionally testing and life-changing, really. And we already know that people with AD are more likely to have psychiatric conditions like depression. 
The next study, the 13th covered in our episode, looked at how disease and symptom awareness correlates with various psychiatric and cognitive symptoms. The study is called Awareness Dimensions and Associated Factors in Alzheimer's Disease. It comes from authors Jacques and Cuervo Lombard and a few others. They are from a few institutions in France, and this was published in Revue Neurologique, which the title of that journal is in French, FYI. The authors here wanted to build on previous work that they had done where they saw a correlation between depression and apathy with awareness. Now, using the same data, they dug deeper into the awareness results to look at how different assessment methods can uncover different dimensions of this phenomenon. They look at three assessment methods. Patient caregiver discrepancy, which compares what what the caregivers report to what the patient reports on things like cognitive and behavioral changes. The second assessment is a clinical rating using a structured interview. And lastly, the performance discrepancy method, which compares scores on tests with the patient's predictions. Using the patient caregiver and the clinical rating methods, depression and apathy were once again associated with awareness, with depression being associated with patient self-ratings and apathy with caregiver ratings. On the other hand, the performance discrepancy method identified executive domains and memory domains as important factors within the tests that were related to awareness. Because of this more complex result, the authors conclude that using the performance discrepancy method allows us to see how different dimensions of awareness are affected in AD patients. Next, we have a clinical trial of methylphenidate to treat the symptom of apathy in AD patients. You may know this drug by its brand name, Ritalin, and it's used commonly to treat ADHD. For this publication, the first author is Mincer, last author is Shade, and they also credit the ADMET research group and a big list of collaborators in the author's list. It's a multi-institution trial with sites across the US and Canada, and is published in JAMA Neurology. The title of paper number 14 is Effect of Methylphenidate on Apathy in Patients with Alzheimer's Disease, the ADMET-2 Randomized Clinical Trial. This trial was a randomized, placebo-controlled trial in 10 clinics that ran for four years. They recruited people with AD, with mild to moderate cognitive impairment, and frequent and or severe apathy symptoms. 200 people ended up participating in the study, about two-thirds were male, and the median age was in their 70s to 80s. The patients were either given 10 milligrams of methylphenidate or placebo twice daily. They found a significant effect of methylphenidate on apathy compared to placebo, with the largest decrease in the neuropsychiatric inventory apathy score seen in the first 100 days of treatment. Methylphenidate treatment compared to placebo improved the rating on the AD Cooperative Study Clinical Global Global Impression of Change Scale by a ratio of 1.9 to 1, meaning that treatment had a higher chance of improving this measure. The authors go into many other results that I don't have time for here, but I encourage you to check out the paper for all of the details. Based on this study, they believe that methylphenidate is safe and useful to treat apathy in AD patients. The last few papers of our episode today deal with sleep and circadian rhythms, how these are affected in AD, and how these alterations correlate with brain changes or cognitive deficits. 
Many AD patients suffer from sleep and circadian rhythm alterations, and these may worsen cognitive decline as well. First up, paper number 15 of the episode, which looks at EEG alterations and cortical thickness in Alzheimer's disease. It comes from the authors Datri and De Gennaro out of the University of L'Aquila and the University of Rome in Italy, and is published in the journal Brain Science. The title is Relationship Between Cortical Thickness and EEG Alterations During Sleep in the Alzheimer's Disease. Previous work has already shown changes in EEG recordings during sleep in AD patients. So these authors wanted to see how the EEG alterations seen in AD patients relate to cortical structure. This small study had 23 AD patients who had polysomnographic recording of sleep and MRI scans. They mentioned many different results, which I'll just briefly touch on here. They report a correlation between cortical thickness and sigma band EEG power during non-REM sleep or non-REM sleep and with delta and beta power during REM sleep. The right precuneous thinning related to EEG measures and thinning of the left entorhinal cortex was inversely correlated to non-REM sigma power in the frontal regions. Atrophy of the temporal, parietal, and frontal areas were associated with increased delta activity in the frontal and temporal regions. If you're like me, you might have gotten a little bit lost in that summary, but overall, the authors suggest that there's an association present between sleep EEG alterations and brain structure in AD patients. And if this is your field of research or this is something that really interests you, definitely check out the paper to get the full scoop on what they're talking about and how all these brain regions are involved. So that last paper was about uninterrupted sleep. This next one is about nocturnal awakenings so waking up in the middle of the night, and how this relates to neurodegeneration in the locus ceruleus region of the brain. The title of paper 16 is Associations Between Locus Ceruleus Integrity and Nocturnal Awakenings in the Context of Alzheimer's Disease Plasma Biomarkers, a 7T MRI study, published in Alzheimer's Research and Therapy by authors Van Egru, Van Horen, and Jacobs, and they are from uh, Maastricht University in the Netherlands. These three researchers studied the structural integrity of the brainstem locus ceruleus, an important brain region for the sleep-wake cycle. They wanted to know if this correlated with sleep-wake measures in people who were not cognitively impaired and how this related to AD biomarker levels. They had about 70 participants, about half of which were women, and about 20 of them were APOE Epsilon-4 carriers, which is a well-known AD risk gene. They looked at the locus ceruleus using high-resolution MRI, took self-reports about sleep quality, and measured plasma levels of amyloid beta and tau. They corrected their analyses for a variety of factors, including age and sex, and they found that lower signal intensity of the middle to caudal locus ceruleus correlated with more self-reported nocturnal awakenings. They saw this the most in the people who also had high levels of total tau in the plasma. The authors end by saying that this suggests that the locus ceruleus is important for sleep-wake regulation in these individuals, and perhaps this could pave the way for early identification of AD and prevention strategies. We've reached paper 17 and the last paper of the day. This one is a community-based project looking at sleep symptoms and cognitive complaints. 
The first and last authors are Nicolazzo and Pace, affiliated with Monash University in Australia and Harvard in the U.S. Published in Sleep, the title is Sleep Symptomatology is Associated with Greater Subjective Cognitive Concerns, Findings from the Community-Based Healthy Brain Project. As the title implies, this study was done in a dementia-free community sample, and the authors looked at whether problems with sleep were associated with subjective cognitive concerns or with objective cognitive ability. This was part of the Healthy Brain Project, and data was taken from almost 1,500 participants, three-quarters of which were female, and the average age was late 50s. Based on a variety of sleep scales that participants completed, the researchers classified them as high, moderate, or no sleep symptomatology. They adjusted for many demographic and comorbid factors and found that those that had worse sleep symptoms also had more subjective cognitive complaints, even though their objective cognitive performance was normal on average. Interestingly, those that had had high cognitive concerns showed a larger association between high sleep symptomatology and psychomotor function, one of the objective measures. Based on this, it seems there's a relationship between sleep symptoms, subjective cognitive concerns, and that the the presence of both of these could even worsen some aspects of objective cognitive ability. And that's the end of our episode for today. I hope you enjoyed, and remember that you can find all of our papers that were talked about today in our bibliography. Check the show notes or our website, www.aminder.com, A-M-I-N-D-R, to find the link to that. We have episodes coming at you every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. If you like today's topic, we'll have an episode on clinical markers of AD coming out next week, hosted by Sarah, which may pique your interest as well. This episode covers papers on cognitive and other behavioral and clinical indicators of AD and how they can help us better detect and diagnose this disease. We cover a variety of topics here at Aminder, and anything we don't cover in full episodes still gets covered in a bibliography. So check the show notes or our website for the link to all of our bibliographies. If you like the show, we'd really appreciate it if you considered leaving us a review if you haven't already. You can leave reviews on Apple Podcasts and on other podcasting apps. This is something that really helps us to reach more listeners that would benefit from the show. So if you leave a review, thank you so much in advance. You're really helping us out. And if you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media. We are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and also YouTube and LinkedIn, to name a few. So find us there and connect with us. We would love to chat with you. And finally, I have to thank my amazing team of volunteers that help put every episode of Aminder together. Starting with the sorting team, which for the September papers includes Jacques Ferreira, Christy Yu, Sarah Luadi, Kate Van Pelt, Nicole Corso, Edin Dubchak, Kira Tosevsky, Dana Clausen, Ellen Rowe, and actually myself as well. So you can see by that long list of names that the sorting process is huge. Sorting hundreds to thousands of papers each month is a big job and it requires a big team. I'd also like to thank Anusha for reviewing the script and the edited episode, Anjana for making the bibliography today, and Sarah for making the word cloud. And as well, thank you so much to our sponsor, the Canadian Consortium of Neurodegeneration and Aging. Anusha also makes the music for our show. You can find her on YouTube under AK Music or on SoundCloud using her name, Anusha Kamesh. 
And finally, thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you found this podcast useful and accessible and look forward to you joining us again soon. See you later.